0: this is Brent Jensen and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Joining me on today's show from the UK is my pal, highly respected music journalist and bass player extraordinaire, Mr. Joel McIver. Joel, welcome back to the show, man. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing really well, Brent. Thank you so much for having me back. It's, it's a real pleasure.
0: You are very welcome. I'm glad to have you back. It's, uh, this is your second time now. How does it feel?
1: It feels really good because there was a lot that I didn't say last time that I could have done. When
0: <laughs>
1: I, was it? A couple of years, It was two two years ago, right?
0: No, it was just uh, I think it was last February, so it was about a year ago.
1: Good lord! Yeah. Well, I remember we talked. We talked for uh, it must have been an hour, maybe even more. So, oh, I yeah, I how much editing you had to put in? So, no. I'll try and be a bit less, less verbose this time.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. So, before we get started, Joel, let's talk a little bit about your new literary project. I know that you're working on an autobiography with the legendary John Mayle. That's not John Mayer, it's John Mayle. And uh, John Mayle was uh, a 60s guitar player, probably best known for leading his band, uh, The Blues Breakers, and, and some guys who played in that, Clapton, I think Mick well, uh, Taylor, uh, yeah. Mick Fleetwood. So, what's going on with that project?
1: So uh, it must be three years ago now. Um, Mayol's manager was looking for someone to help him work on his autobiography. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's timely, you know. He's he's I think he's 83 now, still in fantastic shape, mm-hmm. you know, still touring, um, still creating, still recording, and and you know his brain is as sharp as a tack. Um, and uh, I jumped on board, of course. I mean, what an honour the man of, in this country, anyway. Um, he is renowned in a way that he may not be elsewhere. I'm sure around the world he's well known for having um, given Eric Clapton his, his first major gig and his band, The Bluesbreakers, as you just said. Mm-hmm. But over here among aficionados, anyway, he's regarded as one of the sort of central um, artists of the, of the British blues boom, yeah. which really is best known for sending the Stones and the Artbirds to America yeah. um, and returning. American music back to America, yeah. In in a kind of beefed up R&B uh, uh, English way, which always makes me laugh. You know, uh, the thought that we stole um, uh, American music and sold it back to America wholesale—that's right, that's uh, true. <laughs> the Rolling <laughs> Stones. Up, but, he, but but actually, he was not. His interest was in American blues. He, his um, his mission really, and he's, he's not just a musician who goes out and sells records. He's on a mission to preserve for posterity as much american blues music as he can Hmm. um so when he was um when he was a younger man when he was in his 20s and 30s that was all he did he tracked down rare vinyl and rare 78s and whatever they had Mm -hmm. back in the 1930s before he uh he he saw service in korea um and you know was has been a recording artist for, for since the 50s um but his big thing really was keeping the british blues uh, sorry american blues alive in doing so he he sustained a british blues movement um and has really continued to do so ever since then and you know he's such i, I cannot tell you man the stuff that is in that book oh <laughs> it's it's incredible it's not just some guy droning through a 12 bar for 60 years it is full of mad stuff one of the stories being that he lived in um I believe Laurel Canyon mm-hmm. in the seventies, oh. and he he had a house there that was the, the definition of insanity. So <laughs> Keith Moon over, and you know John Lennon and, and you know the rest of these people, and they would have these parties that you would not believe. You know, people quite often didn't survive. Yeah. They left with broken bones, literally. Um, uh, so and, and there's this crazy part of his life. Uh, in the 70s and then settles down he sobers up and uh, lives a more responsible life from that, from that point on but, so the book <laughs> is all about that and, and and in fact although I'm his co-writer what I really am is his editor because uh, he actually wrote a 200,000 word autobiography some years ago oh wow um, and, it, and it's my job to to edit and update that book mm-hmm. and uh, add in a few choice quotes from various people he's worked with along the way um, and he's worked with everyone, man. I mean, I was talking to Andy Summers of The Police a while back. I was interviewing him for a magazine, and he was telling me how he also used to play alongside uh, male um, in the London clubs in the 60s. Oh, wow. So they were part of that scene. I know, it's crazy. When you I didn't back, know that. And Andy Summers, who like, was in this cool punk band. Yeah. And he's like 76 years old now, but actually has this old Brit blues background. Um, you kind of forget how far back some of these guys go and how and what they've done and the sort of volume of the, of the things they've done is huge. Yeah. So that's, I've been working on that for a year or two, uh, along with the other stuff that I do, uh, and that is going to be coming out on Omnibus Press, I think, next year. So awesome. it's going to take a while to, to, to finalise, but uh, it's going to be quite a book when it's done. So um, thanks for letting me uh, drone on about that. For a oh, bit, but I, I look forward to reading fun. that. Well, he's a lovely guy as well. I mean, he's, he's very, you know... He, He's very happy for me as the editor to put in and take out stuff as I think fit because I'm, um, you know, that, that's my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the, but the original material is amazing, you know. I mean, 200,000 words. He he could have written 400,000 words actually, um, and it would have been a huge, huge book. Wow. But um, so yeah, so that's the current thing that's occupying me apart from uh, the day-to-day job of editing bass guitar magazine and being a journalist for a bunch of magazines and the other books that I do. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, wow, I look forward to reading that book. I didn't know that Mayall, uh lived in California at all.
1: Yeah, he did. Wow. Um, in fact, his house famously burned down. Um, I can't <laughs> remember the name. Of it. It's one of those famous roads um, in, in in Hollywood. You know, one of the obvious ones that probably a tourist bus goes up and down there every day now, full of British tourists.
0: Oh, I'm. But fair. Uh,
1: anyway, so yeah, he's got some American history as well.
0: Very cool. All right, Joel, what do you say we get into your tunes? We're going to do something a little bit different today at your suggestion and something I'm very excited about. You have provided me uh, with an idea and a song list. And uh, what we're going to do is with this list of songs, um, this is a list of songs that you believe will still be popular in 100 years.
1: I'm going to try and make that argument anyway, whether people take it seriously or not. I
0: don't know. <laughs> well, you know what you're talking about, but also I, I'm really interested in this rationale because some of these songs, man, I'm perplexed. I got to tell you. Good. I can't, I can't wait to hear what you say. Okay. All right. So uh, the first one, let's kick it off with the Beatles and back in the USSR.
1: So the concept here is that I wanted uh, to select some songs that I thought would be popular 100 years from now. Um, and that that was my so slightly ambitious idea and <laughs> contextualizing that uh, makes me feel that it's even madder because you know rock music is what 60 years old at this point maybe a little bit more yeah um and you know and and even kind of jazz and blues only go back 100 years from now mm-hmm. so um perhaps I'm being a bit optimistic suggesting that the pop songs I'm about to mention will still be popular in 100 years from now but let's give it a go um so i played safe with my first one it's a beatles song yeah um, and Uh, they have continued to be uh, the the best-known band of all time, Mm -hmm. Uh, even though they've been uh, dissolved since, what, 1970, was it? 1971, I can't remember, 1970, which is most of our lives, right? At this point, people are still quoting them, still referencing them. Um, And the song I've chosen is partly because it's one of my favourite songs of all. It's back in the USSR, which I I, I cannot tell you how much I love this song and have done ever since I was a kid. Um, it's so powerful, it's so uncompromising and so sarcastic mm-hmm. way it completely mocks the Beach Boys back in the USA yeah. <laughs> um, in an affectionate but fairly pointed way. you know. Um, and my view is that if in 2118 someone looks back and says, what were some of the earlier political songs that talked about um, socioeconomic developments of the day in the 1960s? then possibly they'll say, well, did, was anyone writing about the, the, the Cold War between the Soviet Union and, and the USA? Was anyone talking about um, the different political ideologies between those two superpowers? And in pop music, of course, lots of people were. Mm-hmm. But what were the biggest band in the world talking about? H- how were the biggest band in the world talking about it? You could argue that back in the USSR is, is their commentary. Um, and what's interesting is that they took side of the, of the evil empire, right? LAUGHTER um, <laughs> So my view is that not only is it a good song and it's very listenable and it's hummable, it's, it's funny and it's sarcastic and it's quite arch, um, and that it may well remain one of the Beatles' better songs. Um, but I'm sorry, most long-lasting songs um, that, that, that even 100 years from now people may put on because certainly in, in the rock vocabulary that we have today, it's no different, uh, really. It, it's, it's two guitars, bass and drums and, and a 12-bar. Um, people are still making that kind of music now, 40 years later, which leads me to wonder whether it's not impossible that they'll be making it 140 years from now. Mm-hmm. So we will see. Nuclear war notwithstanding, you know, hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to hear this then. So I actually think I'm on fairly safe ground with this one. We'll see.
0: I, no, I think so too. I think that this song probably, you know, along with most of the entire Beatles catalogue will still be popular in 100 years. Um, I do like your selection here just because uh, it's it's cheeky. You know, mm. and the Beatles have, have been known to be cheeky. You know, Norwegian Wood would, uh, is a good yeah. example in my mind, just with that last verse about uh, burning the house down and that sort yeah. of thing. So, right. But um, yeah, I absolutely. I agree that the song it's will definitely.
1: Intelligent, it's a kind of intelligent insolence, isn't it? Or sort of slight sort of a wink and a nod, you know what I mean? And I think people appreciate that across the generations. Yes. And that is what makes me think that uh, an equivalent rock song by. Say, I don't know, The Birds or by Led Zeppelin, which is a little less cheeky, as you put it. Maybe Mm -hmm. that won't resonate quite so well. We will see, or our children might see.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I think that might, you know, and that might even be lost on on some Beatles fans. Some people don't really (laughs) appreciate that depth that they have, so.
1: There's a a lot of cheeky sort of stuff in there, isn't there? There's quite a lot of kind of childish filth as well in in some of the... (laughs) That's true. In some of the vocabulary which you have to dig out. You have to be familiar with the Liverpudlian vernacular, I think, to... uh, to, to grasp.
0: Well Let me ask you a question then, while we're on this topic. So, in um, one of the tunes from uh, the White Album, which the which back in the USSR is from, uh, mm. it's a Lenin tune. I, it, the name escapes me; it'll come to me in a second. But he he describes uh, rally as a git. What is a git?
1: Um, a, a nasty person. You know, uh. someone. Some, that's all. Someone who you don't like. Uh, okay. We we use it. That's a common word today. We use that. We see that guy's a right git. You know. <laughs> don't, He's unpleasant. That's all it means. <laughs>
0: uh, so the song is so tired, actually. That's what it is. <laughs> so tired.
1: Yeah. Any other um, any other slang I can help you with?
0: I'm going to make a list, and I'm going to send it over to you. <laughs> <laughs> because there You're are a yeah. few. <laughs> no, he's a git. He's a,
1: he's a, we often, we quite often say he's a wanker over here. Yeah. And that's actually a real insult. But I wonder whether it's that insulting. The Americans that I, I know well, tend they, to regard it as a very lightweight thing to say.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it can be considering the the verb, I guess.
1: Considering the origin, <laughs> this is a whole other podcast. We should do swear words in. We could.
0: Uh, in, we yeah, can, we yeah. could. We definitely could.
1: Blanking and pop songs. Anyway.
0: <laughs> There's a lot of that. Okay, <laughs> next tune is uh, Black Sabbath and it's War Pigs.
1: Well, along similar lines, actually, this is a this is. Uh, let us be under no illusion that uh, when people look back. Uh, the 20th century and probably the 21st, uh, American culture will be the dominant uh, culture that they regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sabbath made this comment, didn't they, about the Vietnam War um, with war pigs. Um, not only that, it's a, it's a very uh, catchy song. It's it's quite simple. It's memorable, um, and for those reasons, because it comments quite profoundly on what was going on politically, and it's catchy. I think it's going to I think it's going to have a certain lifespan. Um, in a way that some of their less um, immediately graspable songs may not. Mm -hmm. I I wonder a little bit about Sabbath's longevity and, in fact, the longevity of heavy metal in general because it's not easily digestible by the masses. Um, That said, you know, I've I've often made this point that metal is something that people enjoy in good times and bad times. Mm -hmm. Um, And people always have energy that they need to work off and how better to do that than by listening to energetic music. So I think i would be very interested to know if if uh, people will be listening to to unsociably loud music um, uh, a century from now. I but think if so. they are, if they are, I suspect it will be songs like this that they listen to.
0: I think so. You know, metal is a little bit like alcohol, right? People drink yeah. when they're happy and people drink when they're sad.
1: Right, Indeed. and it's embedded in the culture, you know. And uh, it's something that that if you don't do, you're generally missing out.
0: <laughs> exactly, it's, it's true. <laughs> That's a good
1: point. I think the fripperies that the outside accoutrements of, of of everything to do with bands like Sabbath will fall by the wayside you know no one's going to remember the Osborne's tv show um no one's going to remember the Ozfest no one's going to remember um the fact that Tony Iommi injured his fingertips you know I, but what they're going to remember is the songs mm-hmm. I think um that is if people are bothering to listen to music this far in the future I hope they do
0: oh I, th- I think so I don't think yep. that you know. I don't. I don't think these these things will be lost. I th- I, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because I think that um, a certain portion of music will endure, and I think mm-hmm. that you know, Black Sabbath and the Beatles certainly will endure. I, I you yeah, that's know.
1: Pretty easy picks, actually. I started off with some obvious ones that I felt I could uh, safely defend.
0: Well, You we well, <laughs> started <laughs> off with the easy ones. You're working your way up. So this one, I think, also will, uh, will endure, Joel. It's David Bowie, Changes.
1: Yep. Well, it's, a, it's an obvious, almost cliché choice uh, of, of his songs, I think. Um, but if, By the way, I think it's two years today, as we speak, since he died. Yes, it is. Um, I, I think so. So it's, it's, it's good to be talking about him. But um, there's something about the production of this song, which is timeless. It's very crisp and in-your-face, mm-hmm. um, but it's not obnoxious. It's quite, uh, it's quite radio-friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, those ridiculously catchy lines you know turn and face the strange yeah. everyone thinks is, turn and face the strange um, and uh, it's reflective I think of the fact that he was such a vivid chameleon like character mm-hmm. uh, in a uh, music scene which, which wasn't particularly right um, he, he, he stood out so incredibly that I think his um, reputation will, will, will last and his music will last there has been such a huge uptake of, of, of his music since he died, in a way that I hadn't really expected. I thought he'd get a kind of wistful following, you know, mm. um, like actually uh, Leonard Cohen did, for example. You know, res- respectful, yes, um, but not hysterical. And and I think um, Bowie's death has left a lot of people being very bereft. Yeah, uh, they'll, and they'll tell their children about it, and possibly their grandchildren will even feel the reverberation. So who knows? I mean, I chose this song. Um, because it's so snappy and catchy and fun. And it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to understand. Changes, cha-cha-changes. I don't really know what it means, actually. But, um, you know, it it sounds relevant to everyone, right? Which I think will help help it live on a few decades.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I think that, you know, of his entire catalog, which is quite vast, um and quite rich. I think this is one of the songs that people will remember him for, partly because it's just self-representational, you know, people think about the the, you know, he was a he was an androgene, he was a modern pop star, he was a folky. Yeah. And so, you know, this is very self-representative of of what David Bowie was.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think so much of his other stuff will, will be swept away. I don't mm-hmm. think people listen to anything post-1990 uh, 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 after 40 years from now, right? Which is kind of a fairly grim grim thing to prognosticate, actually. But I think it's true. You know, the, the gems in the catalogue stand out. Unfortunately, he had many. Um, and, yeah, you know, we'll see. Hopefully, you know, guys like you and I will have another 40 years and we can be sort of nearly halfway to the point I'm talking about. And we can talk then and say, well, which ones are these? Uh, which ones are these songs? Was I write about? Knock, but, on, um,
0: knock on wood. Let's let's hope that let hope that we last that long. Be
1: nice, wouldn't it? Right, it would be nice.
0: I'm going to join um, you in London for a pint. And we're going to go over this list in 40 years. How about that?
1: That's yeah, yeah. Do, do a tick next to anyone that was still still remotely <laughs> listened to ever.
0: All right, your next one. The degree of difficulty is increasing, Joel. I think
1: this one stands out. Are you familiar with the song?
0: Uh, very, very vaguely. I know that uh, Fairport Convention is was a big English folk group back in, was it like the late 60s or early 70s? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: really long time ago. And not really that huge, not compared to the people we've been talking about so far.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Fairport so it's Convention, Come All ye. Come,
1: all, come all ye. It's, mm-hmm. it's, The song is called Come All Ye. It is a uh, modern version of a sort of traditional arrangement, and um, that is actually where it's already... The elements of the song are already centuries old, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the basis of my argument for this one, which is that it's lasted this long, in in various parts. It's kind of bolted together version of, of old music. Mm-hmm. I don't see it going away, and it's funny because folk music, in the sense that I mean it, not as in Bob Dylan or Nick Drake, even, but as uh, sort of Ralph McTell, Davy Graham, Bert Jansch. Um, and John Renborn, which is a sort of really refined British school of acoustic guitar music, mm-hmm. um, is not really in your face on a daily basis. I don't know many people who listen to it. I, I, I know it exists and I know it's popular among a certain kind of woolly pullover-wearing um, demographic, <laughs> and, <laughs> which I am one, actually. But um, <laughs> it, it just refuses to go away. This is the most tenacious music you can imagine. It's played in folk clubs in tiny villages and on islands in all over the world, not just in the English-speaking world. Really? Um, I'm not really sure that Fairport Convention were this fantastic harbingers and kind of bearers of the message. I think it, I think the music runs deeper than that. And, you know, you only have to go to a, a remote Scottish island in the Orkneys or, or Shetland, and you will find some old guy with a beard playing the stuff on his guitar really? in a club to, to six people and a dog. And I'm sure it's the same in the remotest um, uh, regions of Canada. Um, and, and you know, the equivalent folk roots music of of, of every culture in the world has this music, not mm-hmm. this exact but music that is obscure, but just keeps going and going. And that, I think, is really what I'm saying. It's been sort of old, um, melodic, slightly droney, um, very, very emotional music played very simply. Um, we'll just keep going and it mm-hmm. will just keep going. It doesn't need amplifying. It doesn't really radically change across the centuries. Uh, we've already had a couple of centuries of this kind of very English acoustic folk music, uh, and I, I would love it to continue, and I think it will. In fact, we may find that it outlasts everything else on this list.
0: I can see that, you know, just because, if if not for the fact that it falls in such stark contrast with what's going on now, you know, there's always going to be an appetite for this sort of thing in my mind.
1: Go, Matt, but I mean, the equivalent, I think, that's popular is, is kind of Americana and country, you know, and I know there's, there's a whole poppy country movement, Mm -hmm. but I, there is, there seems to be quite a lot of, uh, blues country, sort of folky rootsy music that is authentic, um, and is quite old and it's, and it's played by young people. So I think there's a future for it. For that reason, young people appear to be taking it up.
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: Unlike jazz, for example, and I talk about this often now, there's no, there's no jazz on this list, not because I don't like it, but I think jazz's day is done. Really? And I hate, I hate to think that because I love Miles Davis and Coltrane um, and John McLaughlin. I honestly th- i don't see young people really coming forward in large numbers to take it up. And I know a few excellent young jazz musicians, um, but I i don't see it happening in sufficient numbers for it to last another century. Hmm. Uh, you know? I, I just don't.
0: Why, why do you think that is?
1: <clears throat> why? um it's a very good question because the music not very digestible requires a lot of um uh, talent to play a lot of effort to master um it's not immediately rewarding in the way that uh, a kind of you know sing-alonger folk choruses or or a rock riff is um it's difficult music and i think it suffers from an image problem i think people stay away from jazz because they're afraid of it yeah um, and, and for those reasons i think it's it's dwindling you know, you ask any old jazz jazz fan who's in his seventies what he thinks of the future of jazz, and he definitely, definitely will not be very optimistic.
0: <laughs> no, I agree. I, I, and I think you and I talked about this on your your last um, your last episode. Yeah. There's a, a stigma attached to jazz, particularly among the younger um, folks, that yeah. uh, it it can be snooty, you know, unusually complex, and just yeah. you know, for those reasons, it's it's just unattractive.
1: Yeah. I mean, the nearest that jazz gets to the pop to the popular vocabulary now is sort of swing, isn't it? And sort of Michael Bublé and that, that kind of yeah. fa- fairly plastic interpretation of old swing music. But yeah. I mean, at least it's there. But it's not very authentic, is it? It's not really, you know, it's not it's not Miles Davis.
0: <laughs> well, and that's a great point. I think that you know, I hate to say this, but guys like Bublé almost make a caricature of of that type of jazz, right?
1: Yeah, but then the stuff's very singable. You know, you hum it. You know, so we're all we're all guilty. Oh, for but, sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I you you struggle to assign much value to it, don't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's just, it's like that, it's almost like a homogenized version.
1: I'm afraid so. Yeah, that's why it sells, sells so many copies, <laughs> or, or st- is streamed that often. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay. Are you ready for your next tune?
1: I am, yeah. The next one is uh, Times Like These by The Foo Fighters. Yes, or sir. just Foo Fighters, if you prefer. And this was one of their biggest hits. And I, I tell you, this the earworm of this chorus, I know it's an old song, but for some reason, you know how you get into, into songs years after they were released? Mm-hmm. I, I, sometimes. I uh, got into this, I don't know, a year or two ago, and I keep playing it. And it's insanely catchy. And again, um, as far as I know, there's some sort of commentary which Dave Grohl is making uh, about, about the passing of the years in the song. And, you know, now I'm looking at it, I'm sort of thinking, God, it could have been any other big rock hit of, of, our, of our era. Mm. Um, but they appear to have had a huge, uh, huge success in, in a short number of years in a way that almost you, you would not normally assign to, to a band of this nature because the stuff is not, it's hard to pin down. I
0: if agree. you take the
1: Fighters catalogue as a, as a whole, it's kind of a big amorphous blob of guitarists. Yep. And a lot of it is catchy, a lot of it is not um but people people queue up to buy tickets to see this band and i think the amount of digital film there's going to be stored away in the world's computers over the next few years just means that you can never get rid of them right yeah they're, they're going to be uh embedded in in the, in the dna of the culture and i think they won't go away for a long long time and i like them and don't get me wrong and i've met a couple of those guys did the foreword to one of my books and um, they're brilliant people and great songwriters, but it's it's not they're not the the first band that I queue up to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, a lot of people do, you know. And and I, I, they're so embedded. They're like they're like Oasis were twenty years ago. You know? Yeah, um, you you can't get away from them, and and probably you never will be able to.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I've always been kind of um, confused by the that that magic elixir that yeah. is the Foo Fighters, because you know to your point. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, reach out for a a record to put on by the Foo Fighters uh, right away. You know, Mm. I'd have other selections, definitely. But um, they have this certain allure, and I think it's a combination of a number of elements. You know, because they are so wildly popular to the point yeah. where, you know, Dave Grohl had the uh the foresight to say, Okay, we're gonna take a little hiatus because yeah. he, he almost sensed the oversaturation of the band in the market, I think. Yeah. yeah. But that now that
1: takes still, I think, to, yeah. to spot that, to see that coming.
0: Yeah. But 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 they're back again.
1: You no, know, and that last record was a good one too. I mean they that he he is the charisma of the band without a doubt. It's kinda of oh, hard yeah. to isolate. Okay, the drummer's kind of wacky and funny. But yeah. the but he is, he's the guy, isn't he? I mean, he's a spokesman for our generation. He did that film about, um, uh, what was the studio? The, um, um the famous American studio. Not, what was it called? Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, He uh, did, did a whole
1: documentary. On it, well, it? and the
0: soundboards and everything too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The whole thing. And, uh, he has that thing about having been in Nirvana, you know, who, who were this massive force cut off in their prime. So yeah. people are interested. I think, I think people are interested in interesting people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know that that may also be a reason why people will will continue to sort of want to see his face as the decades pass. People are interested to know what he's going to do ten years, twenty years from now. Yeah. Um, and when a when a, a a personality is embedded in the culture that deeply, then it, there is some longevity attached. But we will see. Who knows? Maybe they'll go the way of Oasis.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. Um, you know, I I think that that was definitely one of the elements. You know, he was the, almost the. The uh, continuance of Nirvana for a lot of people who didn't want to let go, right? But then I thought, well, this this will fade. The novelty will fade. But it didn't. You know, they they sustained. It's it's fascinating to me. It's it's almost like a like a peculiar phenomenon. And I shouldn't say that because people are listening to this going, they're a great band, and (laughs) they are they are a great band. But I think that their their popularity almost eclipses their quality as a band.
1: It's funny, you know, and and on top of that, there is no way of understanding why people keep coming to these gigs. Who was it? James Hetfield was saying not long ago, he sometimes wakes up in the night dripping with sweat, worried that people won't show up to the shows anymore. Hmm. And when you look at the latest Metallica attendance figures, you realize that that's not likely to happen. But then again, what's really keeping people coming? You know, I mean, okay, it's a big show, it's fun, it's exciting. But it's expensive, you know, it's not something they haven't really done before. But yeah. people continue to come. And I think you can say the same about the Free Fighters. There's such a large presence at this point mm-hmm. that they will, they will just attract a large number of people. It's like Jupiter has <laughs> gravity, you know, that pulls things in. You can't escape them at this point. And if, if, as and when there is a kind of downward slope, it will, I think it will be long and slow.
0: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: I hope they continue to do very well
0: yeah and you know to be sure i'm not you know demeaning the quality of the band i think they're a great band but i, I yeah. just i think that they're like their popularity is is immense i mean for who the foo fighters yeah. are so yeah. yeah
1: you know you can go and put on one of their records i know i'm saying. yeah it's it's, it's a, a head scratcher
0: it is for sure definitely <laughs> you know what else is a head scratcher joel yeah your your next selection
1: well, so what I've done is I, I have put a song by Ice T on here uh, called <laughs> New Jack Hustler," which was his biggest, is I think his first proper hit. I was aware that the list I'd put together was was uh, made up of white musicians, so I, I wanted to balance that out a bit. Okay, um, but also, but but no, it wasn't just a tokenist gesture. There, there's a reason for this. Um, hmm. Have you ever seen the video? If you knew Jack Hustler?
0: Uh probably. I don't remember it
1: gotta watch it. It's so of its time. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. So what it is, is Ice-T was doing his gangster rap thing. Yeah. And I think it's probably 1988 or I guess that I might be a year or two wrong outside. And um, in the video, him and his gang are hanging around some urban environment. And Mike Tyson happens to be there. I don't really know why, but Mike Tyson is there. Okay. And the focus of the, of the director is clearly on the fact that they all have mobile phones. Mm-hmm. They have um, uh, like flip-flip-out mobile software you know yeah um it's just hilarious how important that is to the video because clearly (laughs) that was new technology and not not many people had at the time yeah and it's it's kind of pathetic so the video is really funny um and it's a snapshot in time so i think the video alone will resonate a little bit with people in years to come just like we love seeing old videos of the 70s and we love seeing old duran duran videos from the 80s or i don't know you know yeah um but the the lyrics are pretty apocalyptic and they're clever um, he uh, he talks about the fact that so he inhabits the the um, the persona of a drug dealer in this mm. song and his rapping is really good. It's really it's really um, it's powerful. It's fast. It's, it's clear. Um, the language is intelligent, largely. Um, and he um, he likens his situation as a drug dealer in urban America as symptom, as symptomatic of, of late capitalism run riot, right? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't actually say that in so many words. Or actually, does. I think at one point he says, "Yeah, I'm a what is it? Yeah, this is am a I'm a capitalist migraine or something like that, or mm. not. <laughs> some word which I love. I love that expression as a snapshot of something that was going very wrong uh, in the Western world at that point in time. It's invaluable, if also really funny because the video is so cheesy. Mm. Um, but so that is one reason why I think it's going to live. Okay, maybe a hundred years is a little bit is a little bit <laughs> optimistic and generous of me, but I do think in years to come, when people say, "What was all this gangster rap and what was where was hip hop at in the in the late 1980s? People will either look at Ice T or they look at NWA. Um, and as far as I recall, NWA didn't do a video that was anywhere near as entertaining as this one, <laughs> even though the music was was you know similarly hard hitting. Yeah. Um, so that's my rationale there. And I realise it's perhaps it's it, it's such a kind of cheesy funny song that perhaps doesn't have as much value as i'm advocating to <laughs> it's worth a view I, I i think it's worth listening to actually
0: yeah I, I just like that you put this much intellectual energy into this it's i can't, yeah. I, can't, I, can't I can't refute your claim there i, I think
1: that you're but right it, it occupies a, a philosophical place yeah. even though at the same time as i've repeated it's completely cheesy and laughable so it it's worth analysing from that point of view. Of course, you can overthink these things. I've tried not to do that, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 funny, but it's but it has some has some significance as well.
0: well. I'm gonna check out the video when we're done here. You're gonna love it. If you've converted me, <laughs> I actually I, uh... I,
1: it's just a, like, why the mobile phone. You know, I mean, it's, oh my god, it's such a big thing. It, I do not remember the video for um, November Rain by Guns N' Roses. Yeah. There's this scene when they're all smoking cigarettes, and yeah. the cigarettes are clearly the focus of the thing to show what bad people they were and like re- rebels. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's that small, pathetic detail which makes everybody laugh. Now, <laughs> is the same with with the cell phones in this Ice-T video.
0: I used to, uh, I used to, you know, I think it was '88 when this came out, or it was '89, one of the two. But uh, yeah. colors was popular around that right. time too.
1: I think it was a little bit more serious then. I think, but right? then then you'd had some quite good films. Um, uh, I mean, hood film is a bit of a kind of a insulting thing to call them, but that that was sort of the genre tag, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, they'd had uh, Boys in the Hood, they'd had New Jack City around that time, and Colors I think was a little bit more serious. I mean, that that genre got really crap really fast. Yeah. But uh, there were a couple of decent films, and this was essentially the music that accompanied them.
0: Yeah. Okay, your last tune. Joel is by the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. That's all right, Mama.
1: So oh, I love this song, man. It actually kind of brings tears to my eyes slightly because he, when Elvis sings this song, and I, I don't have the year for you. When did he walk into Sun Studio? Something like 1956, something
0: like that. 56, 57, yeah.
1: Around that time, you know, he was only what 22 or something. Yeah. And he, his his singing is so uh, it's 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 not that he has a great voice, but he has an emotive one, and. He's singing this song really fast, with real uh, enthusiasm and the kind of optimism that you have when you're young. Um, and obviously, billions of words have been written about how this was the moment when white music changed because it purloined uh, uh, elements of black music and, and, and changed in the, in the, in doing so. Mm-hmm. But you you can you can put aside the over-intellectualizing uh, of the kind that I just did about Ice-T. And, <laughs> and just listen to the song and just think, my God, you know, these, these was, this was a hillbilly kid who didn't have any op- options in life, really. And, yeah, he walked into the studio, cut this music, and here we are, and it's 70 years later, is it? Yeah. And, uh, or whatever, or 60 years later, and we're still listening to it. still think it's brilliant. It's been remastered 50 times, so it sounds really clear. Most of these songs, really, they're snapshots in history which is why I think people look back on them, will look back on them. You know, I'm not the, I'm not the world's biggest Elvis fan. I'm a fan of certain of his songs, but I guess if you were a future historian and you wanted to isolate certain points in his career, you might look at this one. Um, you might look at the army years, you might look at Vegas, um, towards the end of his life, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you were to look at an early point in his career, the sun studios music, you would certainly look at this one. Um, and you might also expand into Johnny Cash and, and, you know, his contemporaries and Carl Perkins. Um, and and to finish off on this, this era has been so analysed, so relentlessly looked at and interpreted, and philosophised about, uh, even sixty years down the line. I see no reason why that's going to stop. You know, people are still going to talk about it, write books about it. Every ten years, there'll be a new revelation or a new um, sort of unearthing of, of information that will be that will make a book worthwhile. And I just think people are going to keep going as the music. I keep listening to this old stuff as as the music industry changes, and and for some of us. Loses its some of some of its quality. People will increasingly look further back, and Mm -hmm. you don't read further back in rock music than this point, do you? So it's kind of a kind of a beginning point for rock and roll.
0: Exactly. I was just thinking that very thing. So this is for a lot of people where it all started with Elvis. Um, It's an easy point of demarcation of of, you know when did rock and roll start? Well, started with Elvis Presley for a lot of people, but um, and I think that you know this is a slam dunk. People will definitely remember this. This will endure without question.
1: If, if none of them, else, none of the others do, I hope this one does because, um, although you know Elvis turned cheesy really fast in his career, mm-hmm. at this point the stuff was completely pure, um, and you know not not a lot of music is, um, and you know, I, I I really hope that our great grandchildren are listening to this. Hey, they might even be listening to this podcast yeah. and and saying, my God, they were right. <laughs> <laughs> From their hover
0: chairs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I think that you've done an amazing job here, my friend. This is uh, I I learned a couple of things.
1: Thanks for listening to me drone on about
0: it, Brent. I appreciate it. Oh, geez, my pleasure. This is a great chat. I I, I love the concept, and uh, you know, I, I think that for the listeners, there are probably a lot of people saying, "Well, you know, what about this song or what about that song?" or agreeing, disagreeing. But that's um, just great fodder for conversation. So, well done.
1: Let's let's hope the listeners contact you or I, you know, and talk about what their choices would be because I'm really interested to hear. There's probably loads of really obvious choices that I should have, should have thought. Oh yeah, that that makes much more sense than, you know, than Fairport Convention or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
0: Well, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about music is that it's uh, it's interpretive. So your back in the USSR might be somebody else's yesterday, for
1: example. Exactly. Yeah. So actually, now now you've said that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should change the yesterday, Oops. but no. <laughs> no, it's equally arguable, isn't it? Unfortunately. Absolutely. Right or wrong. We will see what transpires.
0: We shall. Joel, thank you very much for uh, your time. I appreciate you taking the time to do the show again, my friend. It's always a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Uh, the, the pleasure is mutual. Really. It's wonderful to be on your podcast and, and I wish you so much, so much luck with it.
0: I trust that you'll be coming back soon then
1: oh yeah you can't
0: keep me away now <laughs> good man i'll be calling on you very shortly sir
1: all right <laughs> thank all you right.
0: brent you bet this has been brent jensen and no sleep till Sudbury with my very special guest mr joel mcciver till next time take care thanks everybody.
1: brent jensen is the best-selling
0: author of no sleep till Sudbury, Leftover people and all my favorite people are broken all titles available in stores and on amazon worldwide